The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. If you want to go ahead and turn to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14, we will share with you a few thoughts, just a few thoughts on this passage of this very, very touching passage of Scripture. I want to read to you from the, let's begin maybe around the uh, 32nd verse. I think that's a good place. We'll just read a few verses. In verse 32, um, the faithful recorder Mark says, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. And he taketh with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be sore amazed. Not Peter, James, and John. They were not sore amazed. It was the second person of the Godhead that began to be sore amazed. Does that amaze you at all this morning? Began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy, that's something else altogether, and saith unto them, my soul, this is something else also, sore amazed, heavy, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, exceeding sorrowful. The Greeks had three words for sadness, or what we call depression today. The word in the original language that is translated here correctly, of course, as exceeding sadness is the most intense form of the Greek for depression. It's the most intense form. Does that amaze you? It's the second person of the Godhead. I'm exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tear ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. The astonished servant. He is. In Messianic prophecy, he describes himself as that way. He is astonished. And we have to be very careful how we speak about God. But it's very clear the Apostle Paul told the Hebrews when he wrote to them that our blessed Lord learned obedience. God learned obedience. That is, he experienced something that he had never experienced previously in that he suffered. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And here is a clear and accurate depiction of exactly what took place with the Lord just prior to his going to the cross. He is beginning to be in an incredible way in the press. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
It's a place historically of an olive press. How appropriate is that? And you know the way you get olive oil, which was essential for the sustenance and the sustaining of life in that area. The way you get olive oil, same way that you get grape juice. You press it out of the fruit. You put it in a large press and you crank down on the fruit until what's inside begins to come out. How appropriate for the Son of God to retreat to this place to go before His Father just prior to going to the cross. And so we're going to look at the uh, press today. Those three words, those uh, three things that are pointed out, He began to be sore amazed, the Son of God, astonished, sore amazed, He began to be heavy, and He saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. There's a difference in the way the Son of God dies and early Christian martyrs would die. There is. It's written by many, multiple, even um, pagan historians write about how triumphantly uh, early Christians went to horrific deaths, being sawn asunder, being torn asunder, being burned at the stake, being devoured by wild animals. And it's recorded that their, many of their faces, it was said of Polycarp, that his face shined as he went to the fires and be devoured by the flames. Jesus' face does not shine just now because his death will be different than their death. Because of his death, their death, the death not only theirs, but because of the death of the Son of God and the things that he suffers, the death of all of God's people is different than the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's never been a child of God who has died. You know, in COVID, I've, I've uh, been around so many people. My own mother. We lost my own mother and my brother-in-law. And I had people uh, contact me and console me and say that it's, it's so sad that they died alone. We were not allowed to be with them. It's so sad that they died alone. But I'm so thankful that I was able to tell every single person who told me that that is the last, that's the furthest thing than what they didn't. It's impossible for a child of God to die alone. And the reason is because Christ died alone. Amen. We are never alone. And that's why Paul would say further to the Hebrews, and let your conversation be without covetousness. And be content with such things you have, for the Lord has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And the reason he will not forsake us, the reason he cannot forsake us, is because he did forsake his own precious son. He completely abandoned the Son of God. And that is beginning to happen. <laughs> what we have read. Jesus is beginning to see it in a different way altogether. It's clear. 
the reality of it. Now, I know he's God and he foresees and he knows all things, but he is beginning to feel the fires of God. The storm clouds are gathering. He is astonished. He is sore amazed. He is heavy. And because of what, because of what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, because of what he experiences in the Garden of Gethsemane, it underscores his love for us in a way that if you can see this, if God will bless us to see this this morning, it makes it a love that's greater than any other love that is possible in this universe. What Jesus Christ experiences in Gethsemane and then on Calvary, it's a love that if you have that love, you have all that you need. You say, well, I have to have my wife. Yes, absolutely, you have to have your wife or your husband. That's the reason the Lord gave them to you. But let me say this. Ultimately, this is a love that if you have that, then um, if you lose your wife, if you lose your husband, which is terrible, <laughs> if you don't have the boyfriend or the girlfriend that you think you need to have, this is a kind of love that if you have it, everything will be okay. It will be all right. There's a look at the depth of the love in the Garden of Gethsemane that is further carried further out on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll say again, anything I say here is not to indicate that redemption takes place in the Garden, but unique and amazing things do take place in the Garden that underscores the love of the Son for us. Jesus prays three times in Matthew's account of the garden, three times. If it be possible, let this cup pass. Let the cup. Jesus is now seeing the cup that he's about to drink the next day at Calvary. In the garden, he is seeing that in a unique and unusual way. And in, the, uh, in ancient times, the cup... Uh, the cup always represents, it was, the cup was synonymous with like the ancient electric chair. Do you all know what I mean if I say electric chair? Maybe some young folks would not. But that's the way that we would execute prisoners. The judicial sentence of law be carried out against prisoners. And in the, uh, in ancient times, that's what the cup was referenced to. Um, judicial execution. Socrates, whenever he was executed, uh, by the governing forces of his day for what was called blasphemy against the gods, uh, Socrates was given the cup. He was given a cup of hemlock, and that was the method uh, of execution. But in the Word of God, in the Bible, it speaks to God's ju judicial wrath. Uh, and it helps us, uh, as we look back in the Word of God, why Jesus refers to the wrath of God that is in store for him on Calvary the next day as the cup. The cup's a powerful picture of wrath and judgment. Listen, in Isaiah chapter 51, this is what he says. He says, awake, awake. Isaiah 51, 17, if you want to follow along. Isaiah 51, 17, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury, you've drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling, and you've drained it out. 
And then Jeremiah 25, we're going to come back to Isaiah 51. Then Jeremiah 25, he says this, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send it, to whom I send you, to drink it. So there, God is going to execute judicial wrath against the nation of Israel. And then we go back to Isaiah 51, and this is one of my favorite places in the Old Testament about the cup and the purpose of the cup and tying it to the coming Messiah. He says this, Thus saith thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people. Listen to this. He's talking to the Messiah now. He says, Behold, now thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people. So here the Father who undertook our salvation and redemption, he is going to speak to his Son in messianic prophecy. And listen what he says to him. He says, Behold, I've taken out of thy hand the cup of trembling. Isn't that beautiful? Behold, he's telling Jesus, the Father, Behold, I've taken out of thy hand the cup of trembling. So the cup of uh, God's judgment, it contains trembling. The cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. So whatever the cup is that the Lord Jesus Christ talked about here in Mark 14, in Matthew 28, in Luke, in John's account, whatever that is, whenever Jesus says in, uh, in John 18 and verse 11, he tells Peter, Peter, put your sword back in the sheath. He said, the cup that my father giveth me, shall I not drink it? He says, behold, I've taken hit. The father looks to the day when the son will no longer suffer. And he says, behold, I've taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury, and thou shalt drink no more of it again. So why did you drink it? He said, but I've put it into the hand of them that afflict thee, which have said to thy soul, bow down. Listen to this, that we may go over. They have said to the Messiah, bow down that we may go over. He said, thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. So here we get clear and early insight as to the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ taping, taking the cup of God's trembling, the cup of God's wrath and fury against our sins. It's the cup that we should have drunk. But as he drinks it, he's literally laying his body down for you and I. He becomes the ground and the street of our redemption and salvation. And so it's in the finished work of the Son of God that Christ paves the way for you and I to walk over uh, into glory one blessed day by taking the cup of God's fury. Thou hast laid thy body. It's the broken body. That's the reason we're going to celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning because it was his body that he laid down so that you and I could have access so that we could go over, friends. And that's good news, as the, old, as the old writer said. We are one day, because of Christ, taking the cup of God's wrath into him for us. One day we are going over Jordan. One day we are going over home. And it's because Christ takes the cup. He drinks the cup. The cup is a cup of wrath. It's a cup of suffering. And Jesus Christ is seeing now. He's seeing a, uh, he's getting a preemptive, uh, unhindered, unfettered look 
We're going to talk a little bit more about that and what the cup, what is inside of the cup. He's beginning to feel it. He's beginning to feel the storm clouds of God's wrath. He is beginning to sense in reality now. He knows, he knows that drinking the cup is going to mean, listen to this, it's going to mean the full wrath of God against all of the sins of all of God's people at one time in the cross, on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. Now, listen, everyone, I want you, really please, in order for you to appreciate what we're going to do and remember the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, in order for you to really appreciate what that represents, you must first do this. You have to take a fearless searching moral inventory. So I want you to do this. I want you to remember a point in your life, just one time. Every one of you that are seated on the sound of my voice, you can remember at some point in your life where there was one sin that you committed and God began to really work with you over that one sin. Have you ever lost sleep over something you did? You remember that? Yeah. You remember how uncomfortable that feeling was? I have bathed my pillow with tears at night, weeping over a sin. A hurtful, harmful word to someone who, and nobody deserves for me to be ugly to him, but they really didn't deserve it. And I've wept myself to sleep at night. That's just one sin. That's just, and, and you're feeling the weight of that one sin is tempered by the fact that Jesus Christ bore the full weight of that one sin. Now, you imagine, you think about the weight of just that one sin that kept you up and wore you out that one night. Now, you think about all of your sins that you have ever, the millions of sins that we have all committed. Think about feeling the, the full, unmitigated weight of all of them at one time. We could not take it. We could not stand it. We would pray. Listen, there is coming a day. There's coming a day, the Apostle John says in the Revelation, there is coming a day whenever men and women who are not under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever the Lamb of God comes back the second time without sin unto salvation, whenever He appears and splits the eastern sky, and He comes to deal with those who know not his precious name, those who have reviled him, those who have despised him. The word of God says that those men and women are going to begin to pray unusual prayers. They're going to begin to pray to rocks and mountains. They're going to pray that the rocks and mountains would fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. That's how heavy the weight of their sins is going to be. That's amazing, isn't it? Now listen. You, that's one person. They're feeling the weight of all their sins and they're going to pray, mountains fall on me to hide me. They're going to pray, God, put Mount Everest to hide me from the wrath of the Lamb as they begin to feel the weight of their sins. And then do this. You multiply the weight of the sins of one of God's children times the multiplied billions of all of God's children that have ever been. And all of that is laid on the lovely Lamb of God at one time at Calvary. He bears it all on one time at Calvary 
all of the wrath. I'm talking about the wrath of an omnipotent God comes down. How heavy is omnipotence? The wrath of an omnipotent God hurling his wrath against all of the sins of all of God's people against the lovely Lamb of God at one time at Calvary. It is utter desolation. And the Son of God is beginning to see it and feel it. And he is astonished. He said, I am hurled backward. He is heavy, exceedingly sorrowful. He is sad beyond description. And let me say this. It's not, it's not just, it is not just the fear of suffering that is breaking the heart of the Son of God. I promise you that. But it is the heart of one who has lived for the Father. <laughs> in all eternity, the Son of God delighted in the Father and the Father delighted in the Son of God. He was daily the Father's delight. That's what Solomon says. The Father rejoiced in him. They lived in eternal, ineffable, uh, delightful, holy, sacred fellowship and were incredibly and completely pleased with one another. He was the fullness of the Father. The Father found incredible delight in him and he adored his Father. They were completely pleased. And now... He finds the Father's presence dissipating. Let me say this. The longer and deeper the relationship that you have with someone, the greater the loss when the fellowship of that love is severed. It is. Um, there's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy sitting out here this morning. He's not a boy. But he always will be in one sense to us. And I've seen that boy four days in the past eight months as he was doing God's will in several states removed from his mother and I. And there have been many evenings that I just thought my heart would break in two. Not hearing a sweet voice going up and down the hallways of our home. Now we still had sweet fellowship, but not immediate present fellowship in my heart would break but we would rejoice and that we felt like he was where he ought to be doing what he ought to be doing but my heart enlarges toward him all the time and it's so sweet so sweet to have him with us this weekend <clears throat> but let me say this the love that I have for that boy and he's the beat of my heart sister Diane the love that I have for that boy is just like a little drop of dew compared to the mighty waters of the Atlantic Ocean and the love of the Father for His Son and the Son for the Father. Just nothing. <laughs> Just a little shadow compared to the love in their fellowship. And I'm telling you, on the next day, on the next day, the Son of God is going to cry out, Father. My God, he's going to call to his father the next day. This is the depth of God's love for you. If you feel unloved, please listen to this. I beg you. The next day, the son's going to call to the father. And the father is going to be silent. 
he will not answer. Now listen, my son's in Clinton, Mississippi. And uh, if he were to call me on the phone, and I know his voice, and I know what he sounds like when he's in trouble. And if my son from Clinton, Mississippi were to call me on the phone, and it's in the dead hours of the night, and he said, Father, please come quickly. There is nothing but death that would prevent me from going to that boy. I'd do all I could to get there. And my love for him is nothing compared to the love of the father for the son and the son for the father. I've wondered, I've wondered what the angels in heaven thought. I know that those mighty angels were standing around the throne of God in glory as men and demons and devils were having their way on the cross with the Son of God. All hell was raging against them. And I know the mighty angels must have been standing next to the throne and thinking maybe, Father, send us. We'll dispatch them. They hear the Son of God cry out, we'll go. And just one of them shows up and it's over. One angel wipes out 185 Syrians in one night all by himself. Just send one of us, let me go. The Father holds his hands out, be still. Heaven is silent when the Son of God calls. He leaves his Son alone for the first time. The Son of God is abandoned and forsaken at Calvary. So that you can never be abandoned. You can never cry out, Father, that he won't help. Never. The death and the forsaking of the Son of God at Calvary demands it. It demands it. Dr. Luke says he's in agony. He is in agony here. He's not at the cross yet, so why is he in agony? And what I hope to share with you over the next few minutes, I hope will explain why this is a love beyond any other love. And if you see it, if you see this love, if you see this love, you will no longer, listen to me, if you see this love, you will no longer be tempted to steal love from other places. I've dealt with so many broken homes. I'm weary of dealing with broken homes. I will as long as it's necessary. But homes are broken because somebody tried to steal love from other places. I've dealt with so many wayward teenagers set in the back of vehicles and held teenagers in cars that would have leapt out of the car to their death possibly, carrying them to crisis stabilization units because they were trying to steal love from other places. They'd become addicted to drugs or alcohol, destabilized their lives, because they were looking to fill themselves up. Let me share with you 
This is a love that will fill you up. You won't have to steal. If you can see that there is someone who loves you better than anybody else in this world. You know, I've never seen a lovelier couple. Never seen a lovelier couple. I had the privilege of seeing Harold and Diane McCool. (laughs) There's never been a wife loved any more by any man than Diane McCool. But this is someone that loves Sister Diane even better than Brother Harold did. The precious Son of God. So how do we know? Because he's in agony. There's a difference in going and not knowing and then going and knowing. (laughs) You understand? There's a difference in going somewhere and not knowing where you're going and then going and knowing where you're going. So let me say this. On the lighter side, it's probably time for a little lighter side. On the lighter side, when I was five years old, now the incident may not sound funny, but it will be. When I was about five years old, uh, do you remember the bicycles that they used to have? Young folks won't know this, but used to, bicycles had something on the back. Brother Buddy will remember. Bicycles had something on them that was called book racks on the back. And you could ride double on a bike if you were sitting on that book rack. And so I was five years old, and a young lady in our church, she was about 15, I guess, um, Sister Pam had a brand new swim bicycle with a book rack. And I aggravated her until she put me on the book rack and drove me down the road. We were going down the road having a big time. She was, and I mean, we were moving. She hit a big bump, and my foot kicked out, and the back of my foot and heel went into the spokes and up into the chain, and it cut it up. And you're saying, I thought this was going to be levity, brother. <laughs> a weird sense of levity. So, um, so here's a lift. So my father rushes to me and gathers me up, and I'm just beside myself. I'm just blithering, crying, and carrying on, and hollering, and screaming. And he says, son, don't worry. Don't worry, it's okay, it's going to be okay. I'm going to carry you to a place, it's called an emergency room. I'm going to carry you to a place and they have wonderful people there, wonderful men that are called doctors and and nurses are there and they're going to make it all better and it's going to be great and it's just a wonderful, magical place and they're going to make it all go away. I thought we were going to Walt Disney World. I did. No, let's go to the ER. I don't want to go see Mickey. Let's go to the ER. And then I got there, and, and the first doctor I met, he put, he put a needle that long in the back of my, I'm not kidding you, it was horrible. He had carried me to a, a legal torture chamber. The things that they did to a five-year-old in there was just, it was terrible. But not knowing, I went so happily, only to be 
And then about two years later, I've had a lot of accidents in life. And then about two years later, I'm riding my bicycle and I hit, we have a carport and there's about that much concrete and I hit a bump in front of that and it throws me into the concrete on, and I, I hit the corner on the concrete right across there, the top of my head and it, and it splits my head and I have to have a large row of stitches across it. I was so glad to know that as uh, I went bald that the scar has dissipated. God is good. But my dad grabs me up. My dad comes out, grabs me up. My, my skull split up. And so he picks me up and he says, don't worry, son. It's all going to be fine. We're going to the emergency room. And I said, oh, not this time. No, I ain't buying it this time. No, no. No, 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 no. No. <laughs> you got to sell that to somebody else now, dad. I'm not buying those wolf tickets. Not me. No. So there's a difference in going and not knowing and going and knowing, right? So this, this is what I mean by if you have this love, if you appreciate this love, if you can see this love, you will never, ever again have to steal love from other places. Never. Why is Jesus in agony? Why is he at the greatest, most intense level of depression possible? He knows what the cup is. And here, he's talking to his father. If it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You know, that's the only prayer that God ever prayed three times. Three times, in, in Matthew's account, you'll see that it's three times that he prays the same prayer, Matthew says, three times. Can I encourage you to end? This is the prayer that you'll always get an answer to if you'll end all your prayers like Jesus did three times. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That prayer is always answered. God's will be done. So, um, he's in agony, and here it is. The Father, and here communicating, he sees the cup, he's in agony, and it is because he and the Father, in the garden, together, hand in hand, the Father and the Son, have walked to the mouth of the furnace, and they're looking in. He sees the fire. He sees it. He sees it. How do you know that? <laughs> because he says, again, in John 18, 11, the cup that my father gives me, shall I not drink it? The father walks with him to the mouth of the furnace, and he sees the wrath of God. He sees what's waiting on him. He knows what's in front of him. He understands it. And yet he's willing to go. And so Paul could rightly say, but God, but God, Ephesians 2, who's rich in mercy, do you want to know what great love is? For his great love wherewith he loved us? It's walking to the mouth of the furnace. And let me tell you, 
this furnace is infinitely more hotter, more hot than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. Nebuchadnezzar's furnace is nothing compared to this furnace. And Jesus walks to it, looks in it. The Father shows him where he must go and what he must do in advance. And he says to Peter, put your sword up. Peter's just hacked off the ear of the uh, servant of the high priest. Uh, the high priest, the servant of the high priest is just hacked off. Peter's hacked his ear off. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword up. I'm not going to short-circuit salvation. The cup that my father giveth me, shall I not drink it? And at the end of this, at the end of this, um, his last statement, when he goes back to Peter, James, and John, and, you know, it's found him asleep again and again and again, he wakes them up, and it's not like, uh, well, if I have to, let's go. That's not what he says. He says, arise and let us go hence. The words there in the original show great urgency on the part of the Son of God. He's not shrinking away. He's seen it. He knows it. It's the greatest act of love ever because in going, he knows. It's not only the greatest act of love, but it's also the greatest act of obedience. There are many things my father asked me to do growing up, and I, oh, sure, Dad, I'll do that until I got, I'd never done it before. And I got in the middle of it, and I thought, I can't believe I said I'd do this. The Son of God knew, right? Greatest love, greatest obedience. Christ is unlike anything else. Always in human history, <laughs> always in human history, it's been this. If you'll keep my commandments, I'll bless you, right? If you'll keep my commandments, if you'll do what I ask you to do, then I will bless you. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus can hear the Father say, you keep my commandments. This is the only person in history who's ever said this to. You keep my commandments and I will crush you. Can you believe that? Son, you do everything I ask you to do, and I will grind you to powder. That's what he did at Calvary. He knew no sin. There's no guile found in his mouth. And the Father forsook him, cursed him on the tree, ground him into powder. That's the love that we're looking for. Solomon says in Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loveth at all times. I love this. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So in the garden, Jesus realizing in advance what he's going to go through, what he's going to experience, and he goes anyway, we see that the Son of God truly is our faithful brother our friend that sticketh closer than a brother, born for adversity, the adversity of the wrath of God against your sins. He went willingly. He went knowingly. He would not be deterred. Set his face like a flint. If you ever feel like I'm out of the group, no one loves me, I'm not in the clique, I'm not a part you know, of this, I, they, no, 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 no. A true friend always loveth. And he did in the garden. He did on Calvary. 
And because of that, he's going to love you in heaven eternally. That's good enough for me. That's enough for me. I've got all I need. And listen, I'm so thankful. I've got, the, I've got the sweetest wife. I've got the dearest son and the greatest future daughter-in-law that any man could ever hope for. But take life or friends away and leave me with the Son of God and I'm still full. I love you all dearly. May God bless you and keep you as my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.